0: This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. Please join me in welcoming Andy Pallain to the stage. Thanks Steve. Hi. Oh, that's a bit loud. Hi. Um, hello. I, uh, I put on a fancy shirt and it's so cold in here you get a sort of sloppy dad jumper instead. Sorry about that. So I'm going to talk about uh, design in the age of synthetic realities. And it it's, uh, follows on nicely from, the, um, from Chris and Aral this morning. Um, I'm, I co-wrote uh, the Fjord Trends. Every year we do this, these trends at Fjord. Um, and uh, this was one of the ones that I particularly wrote uh, called Synthetic Realities. And it was kind of one of the hardest ones to, to sort of, I, I knew there was something going on here, and I couldn't quite put my, my sort of finger on it. And it's turned out to be one of the hardest ones to sort of give this kind of talk about because there's so much stuff. Um, And some of it, I show it to people and they're like, yeah, so what? Some people are like, oh my God, the world's about to end. And there's quite a lot of people in the middle. So I expect that what you're going to see, some of you will know. I hope some of it you you haven't seen before. The main thing about it is, though, when you see it all together, uh, you have this moment of, oh my God you really do have that moment of, oh, my god, things are about to change quite extraordinarily. So you probably have seen this. This was uh, done by Jordan Peele for BuzzFeed. And it was his um, sort of this fake PSA of, of him doing an impression of Obama. And he's using a technology um, called facial reenactment. It uses AI. So almost everything I'm showing uses various forms of AI. In its various flavors and GANs and machine learning and all that. I'm not going to go too heavily into it. Um, to, well, just have a look. Now, you see, I would never say these things, at least not in a public address, but someone else would. Someone like Jordan Peele. This is a dangerous time. So there's a longer bit of that, and he, he calls Donald Trump lots of names and stuff, and it's very funny. But his whole point here was, you know, this is really dangerous. We can just make anyone, any public figure, our enemies can can make anyone say anything they like. You may have seen, and most people have heard of deepfakes. So deepfakes started with a, a, a Reddit um, user called Deepfake, and it's using um, generative adversarial networks, GANs, that. Um, they have a generator and discriminator, and basically they work like kind of user testing. You go, how about this? Does this look like a face? And the discriminator goes, no. <laughs> how about this? No. How about this? Not getting there. How about this? Uh, yes, that, that looks like a face. And the two of them kind of neural networks fight against each other, and eventually they start to generate faces. And one of the things you can do with that is you can swap styles. So there's, there's videos of uh, a horse being turned into a zebra, or a kind of tulip being appla- the sort of style of a tulip being applied to a rose. And what he did was, did that with people's faces. So this is a kind of very recent one. There's hundreds of them out there. Uh, Nicholas Cage is the, is the poster child of uh, deep fakes because of the, um, the film he was in of uh, Face Off, where he does it. Uh, this is Bill Hader. He's a, uh, a Saturday Night Cl- uh, Live um, comedian, and he does really good impressions. And for those of you who haven't seen this, here's him uh, doing an impression of Tom Cruise. And what they've done, I wanted to show you this one because it's really subtle. Uh, his face morphs into Tom Cruise's face and then back again. Uh, but only at the moments when he's doing Tom Cruise or talking about Tom Cruise. It's most noticeable. Watch his teeth. Because right, it goes from sort of regular guy teeth to Tom Cruise beamers and then back again. And his eyebrows, actually. So let's just have a quick look. <laughs> you know, like, and uh, some other supporting guys. and then uh, And then Tom Cruise walks oh in. And even those guys are like, whoa. And he's super stoked to be there, <laughs> you know, just like, yeah, oh, boom <laughs> You know, like <laughs> he's like, wow He's just immediately excited um <laughs> <laughs> when he walks into a room. Do you see that? I mean the teeth give it away. It's and it's kind of spooky, right? And so that gave rise to a lot of uh sort of Rather alarmist kind of headlines, right? There's a terrifying trend on the internet that could be used to ruin your reputation and no one knows how to stop it. It's a terrifying trend and it's really crappy clickbait headlines. In uh, fighting deep fakes, mice may make great listeners. You go and Google that one, it's a weird story. But there's a lot of this stuff about this is the end of um, news as we know it, this is the end of truth. Um, no one's going to know what's real anymore. And so, this is where this kind of writing this trend it started. And it, it didn't quite kind of sit with me as I wanted it to. And I kept thinking, there's something not right about this. That It doesn't seem to me that it's deep fakes that are the problem here. There's a very famous quote from a guy called John McCarthy. It gets used over and over again. Uh, He's sort of credited as sort of the godfather of AI. And all the way back in 1955. And he said, you know, as soon as it works, nobody calls it AI anymore. And Chris was talking this morning about um, you know your uh, predictive text. You don't call that AI. It's just predictive text, right? Same as Google Maps telling you that you know you have to leave now in order to get to that meeting. That's also powered by AI. Or Netflix recommending you something, uh, a movie, also powered by AI. You just don't think about it, right? And I had this moment when I was having a conversation with my Google Home. And I know all the privacy stuff. And know how sad that also sounds. And I, I was asking it about restaurants in the, in nearby. And it gave me a kind of list of the top three restaurants it had found. And I said, oh, t- tell me more about that last one. And it said, I'm sorry, I can't find more about that last one on your Spotify playlist. And I was like, oh, you just lost the sort of conversational context. And I know for any voice UI people in here, this is one of the toughest things. But it was like the the microphone, the sort of boom mic, it just popped in from the top of the screen. I was like, oh yeah, this is all just made up. Uh, And this isn't a a, a conversation I'm actually having with a sentient being, it's a bot, and it's kind of stumbled. and, And so my suspension of disbelief was kind of broken. But at that moment, I had this moment of checking myself and go, up until then, I was having a conversation with my Google Home. I didn't really think about. Wasn't oh, this weird? I'm, I'm, you know, like your sort of grandparents used to be when they first encountered Skype or something, and, and they're like, "Oh, I can see you." And it, it, I wasn't having that moment. I just got used to it. And so I think that the whole sort of scare about um, deep fakes and the end of truth and, and all of that stuff um, has it the wrong way around. And I think the more interesting way of looking at this is not how shocking that people aren't going to kind of know what's true or not. The shocking thing is nobody cares and how quickly we don't care about it once it works the reason why uh, the, a good way to kind of understand why uh, fake news isn't kind of fake f- fake news is to look at old so if you look at fake old i would argue that the kind of the death of truth has is, is decades if not centuries uh, gone one of the very first and most sort of famous uses of uh, digital technology digital manipulation that sort of came to the sort of public knowledge was uh, from National Geographic. So these pyramids at Giza here, there was a, this lovely photograph that the photographer took. And when the picture editors got it, oh, it doesn't, doesn't quite fit our portrait cover. And so they used a very expensive system called Cytex, cost thousands of dollars, uh, to shift that left hand pyramid across a bit. You can see in the sort of notch of the right hand pyramid where it kind of, on the magazine cover where it sort of lines up. Because they wanted the camel train in front of it. And at the time, The picture editor said, well, you know, or the editor said, it's just like uh, as if the photographer had taken a step, a meter to the right and and taken the photograph, just a sort of alternative perspective in a a weird kind of echo of Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts thing. Now there was an uproar from the readership because they said, well, you're a scientific journal or at least you you, um, position yourself as a scientific journal. You should not be manipulating kind of reality in this way. Because at that point in time photographs were really considered you know, evidence of truth. Not long later, and if you look at the copyrights in, in, the, um, in the about box here, you know they go right the way back to 1985. Uh, not long later, not, uh, Photoshop One came out, so they started working on it around 1986, and then uh, Photoshop One came out. I used this version of Photoshop. But I'm talking about feeling old. Um, and it was kind of astounding, right? It was amazing to be able to clone stuff and to kind of just select stuff and copy and paste it around the place. I'll talk about the, the dates of this, just to show how quickly that went from really, really expensive kind of uh, custom system to, to, to this, to a verb. You know? we, we talk about, oh, it's just Photoshopped. Can't you just Photoshop that? Who's Any sort of visual or graphic designers in here have been asked that at some point in their career. you right? can't, can't you just Photoshop it? So much so that we all have it on our phones now and we're just kind of, you know, you've got, if you've got Snapchat or whatever you've got kind of making, giving you a sort of fancy selfie, if anyone downloaded FaceApp and did that, we don't even think about it, right? We don't think about the technology that's going on behind it. It's just a thing. But there's a longer history to this. Uh, you know, Hitler, Stalin, all the all the great dictators, they've all had their censors who have um, removed unwanted people from their pictures. This is guy, the guy who uh, was standing next to Stalin, there's a guy called Nikolai Yezov. He was the water commissioner. He fell out of favour. He was arrested and shot. Um, and you know, as if to add insult to inj- injury, um, Stalin removed him from his Instagram feed. <laughs> What you find with all of this is is not the technology itself. It's not the particular use of it. It's the storytelling. And you can just mislabel something, and that does just as good a job. So you've probably all seen what I'm about to show you, which is the Nancy Pelosi video. Um, and she's just a bit slowed down to make the it sound The opportunity drunk. to do something historic for our country. So Rudy Giuliani. Donald Trump's best mate, tweeted it and went, oh, what's wrong with Nancy? Now, that's all he had to do. You, all you have to do is mislabel stuff. And there's loads and loads of stuff out there. Australians will remember the Children Overboard Affair, which used um, cropped photos to, to make the case for John Howard being strong in immigration. Not much has changed there. So storytelling the stories you attach to stuff make, make a kind of big difference. So, sort of putting the, the death of truth and the kind of fake news aside, I, and thinking about what does this mean for the creative industries, what I wanted to do is I wanted to take a sort of a bit of a journey through where stuff is, and then I'm going to end up with what this means for design, and, and we'll come on to some ethical stuff as well. So, now we're at the stage where we've got pretty high fidelity imagery. So, none of these things ever existed. Okay? All, of this, all the images you see up here were generated by, uh, again, by artificial intelligence. Um, the dog, the burger is particularly good because they, they sort of had a version of the burger a few years ago and it looked a bit, bit squadgy. Now the burger looks kind of almost appetizing. Um, the soap bubble floating in the air is a pretty kind of amazing one as well. Okay, so none of that exists. And so this is the kind of level of uh, the ability to generate synthetic images, ob- objects, landscapes, and dog ball. So <laughs> dog ball is, a, is known as a, a class leakage. And what it is, is where the class of dogs and the class of boars kind of leak into each other. Pretty cute though. We're going to come back to some of these kind of little weird, serendipitous things. I like dog boar. <laughs> of course, because we're such a narcissistic species, one of the things we do most of is want to recreate ourselves. So uh, this is, again, organ GAN generated. Um, you can see the kind of uh, progression. I talked about Photoshop, uh, Cytex to Photoshop. Uh, 2014, you get this kind of really grainy, looks like a kind of 1960s mugshot of a criminal. Um, and now you've got a very relatable looking human being who never existed. And this is what they look like when you see lots of them. Right, and it still kind of boggles my mind looking at this. These, none of these people ever existed. I feel a little bit of sad that some of them will never exist again because they've just been generated once. And then you start to see what happens when they interpolate between them. And you see how fluid race and ethnicity is as as they're generating all of these. And you're just adjusting the variables of it. They can adjust poses and hair and and glasses and skin tone and so forth. And sometimes it goes a bit weird. You get little artifacts. But you can see now how attractive this would be to Businesses to brands, to marketing people, because one of the things you can start to do is you can finally solve that diversity and inclusion problem. Because what you can do is you can just generate imagery for your website, for your app, that matches the person who's looking at it based on all the data you've hoovered up about them. And then you get people who look like you. I'll come back to that point later on. Just one more thing just have another look at that. None of those people ever existed. It's kind of pretty crazy. It's pretty spooky. So of course, brands have been, uh, have been playing with this. And Dove uh, brought out this campaign in the UK. I don't know if it was here. It was called Real Mums, hashtag Real Mums, of course. Um, and they put a load of images of kind of the the sort of perfect mother photographs of models um, th- that have been used in advertising through, uh, again, through a GAN um, through an AI, and uh, this was the sort of average that came out. So, and the whole thing was: is there such a thing as a perfect mum? And um, a friend of mine's wife said, "I think that's more like an advertiser's kind of advertising guy's dream of what a perfect mum really should look like." And that bit's important because what you put in also affects what comes out the other end. Right? So once you've had your still faces, uh, what you want to do is animate them. Okay. So what you're seeing here is an input video, and then um, it turns it into a little kind of edge thing, like one of those. Really cheesy Photoshop filters, and it uses that edge out uh, to generate the other output. So the, every face or uh, speaking face where it says output is a uh, is completely synthesized. Right? That, that's someone who never existed. And, you, and again, you can change attributes, can change kind of hair and and skin color and uh, ethnicity and so forth. Right? So once you've done that, what you want is to have. Uh, people's bodies, right? You want to be able to kind of if you're going to generate synthetic artists. So what this does is it uh, it captures and it can do this in kind of quite a crowd of people too. Uh, it looks at the source footage, it captures the bodies and the body segments, it understands how they work in 3D. It, that's what the shading is, and then it synthesizes the uh, a new one. So everywhere it says output, that girl doesn't exist. Right? She's generated by the GAN. And you can see actually on the top left one, there's a bit where her hands kind of disappear, because it hasn't got enough training data to to really make hands. The one that Jordan Peele used, uh, I called it, is facial reenactment. What they can do there is they take a lot of source footage. This is Theresa May, for those of you who don't know. She was the fantastic prime minister we had uh, for the Brexit negotiations uh, just before the other fantastic prime minister we now have. I have to say, as a, as a British guy, I'm sorry. Um, it's not like you don't have anything to apologize about. So um, what you're seeing is their source footage, and then you, you can edit her expression. So she's um, what they've done is they've kind of They've made her pout, but her head is kind of moving how it was. And then in the middle one, they've locked off her pose, and they've left her features working. And then on the one on the right, they've just locked off everything. And she's just standing there, kind of blinking, staring at the camera, which is how I imagine her doing the Brexit negotiations. <laughs> <sciences. laughs> she blinked last. And then, but those all require training data, right? quite a lot of source footage. And now we're at the point where we can take just a few photographs, or even just one shot and turn that into an animated face. So here's the Mona Lisa as a living portrait. And they've done this with Marilyn Monroe and, and Einstein and so forth. And it's quite re- it's quite remarkable. I, I find this quite kind of spooky. But you can also see the, the creative possibilities here. So that's using imagery to ger- generate other imagery. Um, the other thing is to use text and so to dispense with having to kind of do that. You still have to have a lot of training data. But what you do is you put in. Uh, This bird is red with white and a very short beak, and it generates the bird. And you can see it kind of gradually getting there with the resolution of it. It knows it's learned quite a lot about birds, so it can generate a pretty good bird. It knows that birds sit on twigs and branches. It doesn't really know anything about backgrounds. That's why the background is this kind of blurry mess. And sometimes you just get kind of the bird's feet and a little bit of branch, and then there's just nothing. It's just kind of floating in the air, because it doesn't know. So we've got all of those different kind of features. What we want to get to is synthetic artists. Now, one of the very first ones of these, and not many people know it, is in Jurassic Park. So in in the scene in Jurassic Park, and I know I'm talking, this is like half the audiences were too young to even watch Jurassic Park. I'm hoping some of you have seen it. There's a there's a scene um, where Lexi, that's this character, she's crawling through an air duct uh, to to escape the Velociraptor there, and she she falls through and then sort of hangs by one arm and then kind of they pull her back up again. The stunt woman who was doing it looked up just for about 12, 13 frames when when um, she was doing that, and instead of reshooting it because sort of the drama of the scene was really good, the team at Industrial Light and Magic mapped the actress's face onto the stunt woman as she looks up. And you can just about see it when it, when it goes. I'm not going to play the video. Now, of course, for those of you, now I'm coming back up to this generation, uh, you've seen Rogue One. Um, they resurrected uh, Peter Cushing, uh, and they also turned the clock back on uh, Carrie Fisher, and eventually re- resurrected Carrie Fisher. So the top is what you're seeing, is thousands of dollars' worth of um, visual effects to Map Carrie Fisher's face. She's uh, most actors now on major films are three D scanned as a matter of course in in case something happens. And um, so she's she's there, uh, but the bottom one is a deep fake, and they did it in like a day with a desktop PC. And they used the old footage of Carrie Fisher in the original Star Wars. Um, And so she actually kind of looks a bit more like the original Princess Leia than the the top one, which they kind of spiced up her makeup a bit, I noticed, uh, on that one. Now the resolution is lower on that deep fade, but it's pretty remarkable. So once you've got kind of faces going on uh, and a bit of the body stuff, well, what you can do is just get rid of models and photographers altogether. So this is DataGrid. They're a company in Japan, startup in Japan. And what they do is generate head to toe um, models uh, in different poses. And you can see it interpolate, interpolating between the, uh, all the clothes are generated, the poses are generated, and it just kind of switches, switches gender and race all the time. And this. this is what I was talking about before. Right? So if you're in the business of being a model or a stylist, if you're in the business of photographing catalog. Um, especially those sort of more anonymous sort of catalog um, photography for, for fashion. That's all just going to go away. It's very, very hard to see how that's not going to go away. With all these synthetic things, you look at them, and just like with my Google Home, what happens is you get the willing suspension of disbelief. So. Willing suspension of disbelief is that thing where you're watching a movie or you're at the theater or you're reading a book and you, you know it's not real, but you suspend your disbelief in order to in, immerse yourself in it. One of the kind of most well-known examples is little Michaela. Does it, who knows little Michaela in here? Okay. Who who follows little Michaela in here? You liars. Oh, one person, right. One person's on it. So... Lil Michaela is a uh, virtual Instagram influencer. She has, um, I think, 1.5, 1.6 million followers. She's the creation of a branding agency called Brud, who are so transmedia their website is a Google Doc. It's quite cool. Um, So here she is. She's kind of just absolutely styled and, and, and the story about her, she's got a bit of attitude, she's a little bit sexy, she kind of it t- talks all about her kind of life worries and woes. It's all about the storytelling. Here she's going, let's go to the beach, beach. That is all. It's so social media. And uh, she's got 36, nearly 36,500 likes on that. Right? And the comments in it are amazing because half of them kind of feels like they're playing along. I know she's not real, but I'm going to kind of pretend she is. And the other half, I'm not really sure if they get it. I mean, it, it, it's kind of weird. So have a read through it. Now, I think I would argue that this is only possible in the age of uh, sort of Instagram influencers or sort of social media influencers. Where you don't actually have to be able to kind of do anything. You just need to be able to write good stories around the things you're doing in your life. But as it happens, she's now got a music career. She's released two or three singles. She's a TV um, presenter. She was also in a, a controversial Calvin Klein ad where she kissed another female model, even though she identifies as a um, as a straight bot. <laughs> now, if you think that's weird, uh, this is Hatsune Miku. She was uh, she's a Vocaloid. She doesn't, uh, she she's a Vocaloid synthesizer. Well, she identifies as a as a woman. Um, she's a Vocaloid synthesizer, a voice bank. So. Lots and lots of microsamples of actually a real singer, but what you do is it's, it's, a, it's a synthesizer. You put in your melody and you put in the, the um, lyrics and she sings it. Um, she's got 100,000 unique songs to her name apparently. Uh, just watch what's going on here. Here she is in concert. I have no idea what she's singing. The song's called World Is Mine. The main thing is there, you've got hundreds of people going, singing along with her. It doesn't matter that she's actually just a projection on a, on a sort of gauze screen. If anyone saw Tupac's Resurrection at uh, Coachella, they did the same thing. It's a really old theater technique um, from the sort of 1800s called um, Pepper's Ghost. For those people in that audience, it doesn't matter the whole thing of what's real or not. doesn't matter. It's actually probably part of the thrill. She's just an artist that I'm, I'm going to see in concert. Dali Lives is a, a, a nice installation in the Dali Museum in Florida. And his body is an actor, but his face is AI generated, so they took a lot of footage of Dali and they generated his, his face to, to say the things he, they needed him to say. His voice is done by an actor too. But here's a bit where he takes a selfie, because there's a little camera high up on that uh, installation. When he takes the selfie like this, he then breaks the fourth wall and he kind of turns it to, and, and takes a selfie of, and it shows the picture of him in front of you with the selfie. So, you start to get that kind of blurring of boundaries between what's sort of uh, artificial and what's real. And then finally, this is uh, Qin Huang. I think I've maybe said that badly. Uh, Chinese owned press agency. Uh, they've developed uh, a year or so ago AI News Anchor. So, this guy is completely synthetic, doesn't exist. Not as it, and his voice is syn- synthesized too. He's had an upgrade because he was previously just sort of head and shoulders behind a desk. And as you see now, he's now uh, talking about how now I can, I'm can i coming out from behind the desk, and I have more gestures and body language to, to tell the news better to you. And of course, the nice thing about a synthetic news anchor is they will say whatever you want. So if anyone's read Ian McEwen's book, um, Machines Like Me, which is about a guy who kind of buys one of the first androids on the market and about his relationship with it. There's this great line in it, which I think is so, so true. There's nothing so amazing that we can't get used to it. Our supercomputers in our pockets that we will have, only 10 years old, it's kind of remarkable, and we just get used to it very, very quickly. And I think that's what's going to happen with this stuff. I think the whole thing about the death of kind of, um, of reality is long gone. And in fact, my wife was saying, well, I was crying in a sort of Disney 3D animated movie the other day. And uh, I'm just crying over these kind of 3D animated characters. It's because story does that to us. So the last bit is about the future of design. What does all this mean? Let's just recap. So we can now synthesize people, faces, objects, animals, kind of anything. Capture and regenerate poses and movement. You can modify facial expressions of anyone you like. Synthesize places and landscapes, clone voices. I haven't really talked about that today. Generate completely new imagery. Generate writings. So if you go to OpenAI, uh, I can't remember if it's .org, I think it is, um, they, there's a thing called GPT-2 there, which is uh, you can write a couple of sentences of an article and it will generate the rest of the article for you. Sometimes it's pretty hit and miss, but when it's trained well, it's quite remarkable. Effortlessly erase anything from images or video. Generate GUIs and UX flows, which I'm going to show you in a second, and link them all together in workflows. So pretty much there, you've got your whole sort of suite of design tools that you'd ever need uh, that can be artificially generated. So one of the things is going to be AI-assisted, or well, agentive. I'll let Chris argue that one. Uh, design. So this is UI UI Wizard. Get it. Um, and what it's done, there's a couple of variants of this around, but this one is um, taking a, a sketch of a wireframe, you drop it in, it generates all the code and the CSS and all the assets, you get sketch files out of it. You can kind of link them together, so you can say, you know, this button goes to this, uh, this thing. And as you can see, it, it's, they're showing you the code here, and in a minute, he'll move the window around to show you that it's a little kind of responsive thing. Right, so that drudge work of going from your kind of wireframe sketches to this, Uh, starts to go away. and One of the things that you can do with that then is you can start testing or A-B testing at scale. If you think what a GAN is, a generator is your design team. The discriminator is the testers. Instead of just doing kind of uh, A-B testing on just a few features, potentially you could just let the AI generate lots of different interfaces and test thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of versions of it. At that point, you have a design system that you've no idea what it is. It's just out there in the world and it's modifying itself to uh, to the users. All you know is from the data what's being successful or not. This is Adobe's content aware field. and this part of the problem with doing this talk is every time I kind of go, "Oh, this is a new thing that might happen," it, it comes out like a month later and and I sort of I get the sort of painting the Harbour Bridge kind of problem. So the way this works is instead of painstakingly doing the kind of cloning on this, you just select the the cars in this case that you don't want, and and the AI just generates the the imagery that, to fill it in. There's another thing which is about kind of designer is AI curator, and this probably is. I don't know if this is this is this is that kind of blurry space that Chris was talking about before. This image is from a thing called GAN breeder, and so are these, uh, where you breed. Two images together. There's lots of cats in it because you know internet. Um, and you keep breeding them together. And you go, oh, I don't really like where that's going. Let's add a you know a squid in there and see what happens. And eventually you end up with is it sort of abstract or illustrations or surreal illustrations. Now, one of the things about kind of AI is, is, and in the creative industries, is, is oh, you know, AI is going to, re- and automation is going to replace everyone's jobs, particularly those that are kind of rote tasks and kind of repetitive tasks. But the creative industry is a one of the ones that sort are of at the top of the tree, right? We're not going to be touched because you really need humans to be super creative. But actually, humans get stuck in ruts all the time. We all use the same fonts. We all use our design systems. We all kind of lean on those crutches. What AI, like Dogball, can do is serendipitously create these kind of things that you wouldn't have thought of. And actually, I think what will start to happen is you'll start working with AI, and you'll start kind of nudging it in different directions. That's why I called it sort of curation, and saying, no, not quite like this, but like that. And it will start to learn from you, because it's training. For those of you who, um, has anyone seen Runway ML here? OK, that's that's quite interesting. So all the stuff we've been talking about so far, has been, is in the kind of realms of um, quite a lot of obscure papers. There's a lot of stuff on, on GitHub you can find. Um, and these are all kind of uh, code libraries that you, can, you have to at the moment download and install, kind of install all these Python libraries and so forth, and then kind of run most of them from the command line. Which, let's face it, you know, for the developers in the room, good for you. For the rest of us who went to design school because we were rubbish at maths, that's not really our kind, necessarily our strong point. <clears throat> but the other thing is, if you, there's an equivalent here, which is harking back to the days of kind of Web 2.0, which is sort of early 2000s, where you know you used to have to be a sort of web person to publish something online, and then the rise of things like Blogger and WordPress, um, and then social media democratized that. I right? mean, anyone could put anything online, and once that happened, just like Photoshop before it you suddenly kind of it broaden the range of people using this stuff. So Runway is uh, just ca- just came out of private beta. So you can go and download it. Uh, and what it does, it takes all of those things I've just shown you, all those libraries, and it, it either runs them on the cloud or you can download them locally and run it on your machine. So this is me uh, a couple of days ago generating faces. So that face generator I showed you, what you do is you get a grid of them and you click on one you're going a bit more like that, no, a bit more like that, and i like have a bit more like that. This is uh, one of my colleagues Dennis. I showed him it the other day, and he did this little time lapse of him just messing around. it's a thing called GoGAN, um, where it uses uh, this kind of semantic mapping it's called, where you just simple shapes and then it generates the, the photorealistic, or close to photorealistic stuff. Now he did this, you know, this, I don't know how long that sped-up video really was, probably a couple of minutes right, that he's doing. So the nice thing is you start to get a kind of intuitive interface wrapped around that. And then you can kind of plug it into workflows. So for those of you who know Figma, the collaborative design tool, you can plug this into there as part of, as part of the workflow. So that gives rise to this problem, which is who owns the IP? Who owns the intellectual property of that? If I've been a designer in a company for five years and I've been building up this relationship with my AI tools, when I leave that company, do they keep it? Do I own it? I don't know. That's one of the questions we really kind of have to resolve. Or do I have to start again when I go to Or do I have to take over someone else's uh, AI who's really hostile to my tastes and retrain it? Another thing I think we'll see, uh, synthetic twins. So um, <clears throat> there was a, uh, a vlogger in China and she used this avatar. And obviously, avatars as kind of old as the internet. Well, she was using this avatar to look like the woman, young woman on the right. Uh, and during one of her live streams, and she's got kind of, hundreds of thousands of, of viewers, right? uh, she had a tech glitch and it revealed her to be the middle-aged woman on the left. So I think we'll start to see people using AI avatars, and I think one of the reasons we'll, we'll see it is because of the rise of things like finsters, which are fake Instagram accounts. So for those of you who've got kids, this is what your teenagers do. They have the, the Instagram account that you can see, and then they have their, uh, which is their finster, their fake one, and then they have their real one for their actual friends. That's also what influencers use. Right? But there's also this trend towards digital after, afterlife, so hoovering up all that data um, that Aral was talking about, you can, and this is totally Black Mirror, right? This is absolutely, this exists. It's called Eternity Me, this thing. Um, and it takes all of your kind of online life, uh, pushes it into a um, uh, machine learning that generates this kind of version of you. And then you have a have a scan of your face. And so your loved ones can have a little kind of chatbot of you after you die. But I think if you've gone to all that effort to do that, you're not going to wait until you die to use it this is this is great i can have my work my work avatar and pretend to be at work and i can have my other one that i use for social media and so on and in fact i think we'll start to see that stuff happening as a kind of privacy and surveillance avoidance so there's the digital versions of that where you send your digital version out to get all kind of to mess up the the kind of algorithms and then this is a thing called you are me uh, and it's a rubber mask of a face uh, and it's sort it of takes the it's, it's principle is if you uh, for facial recognition, just give it what it wants, which is a face, just not your one. Okay, so there's some ethical challenges. What about this? I've just broken up with someone and I, I, I you know I can do one of these in Photoshop. This took me like 30 seconds. I just mask out, it's not the best bit of Photoshopery, but I just masked this out and the content aware Phil just filled it. What about when I change my relationship status on Facebook? And is there a little pop-up that says, would you like to erase your uh, X from all the photographs on your timeline? You can see that someone's going to ask for that feature to be built. Right. And you can see how tempting it would be. Then there's the sort of selection of this. So is it OK, oh, is it okay as a designer? Well, it's not playing. let me see if I can get that to play. There we go. Is it OK for me as a designer to be, when I'm generating some imagery for the website I'm building, to go, well, I think I'll have a bit more Asian or maybe a little bit more African. Or Do I, as a middle-aged white guy, actually know what that means and, you know, and the subtleties of, of race and gender? Is that OK? Or is it the same as me just looking through a sort of stock photo catalog and choosing people randomly there? I don't really have an answer to that, but I think that's a really important question to be asking, right? and what kind of biases start to creep into those. Apple's FaceTime uh, Attention Correction feature, I don't know if anyone's seen it, it's coming out in the next version of iOS. Uh, what it does is when you're looking, when you're FaceTiming someone and your eye line is looking at the screen, it's not looking in the camera. So you, it's kind of like you're looking at someone's chest. So what it does is it uses their AR kit to kind of bend your eyeballs up a bit and um, make you look like you're looking someone in the eye. So this is great, right? Now we get a real kind of good face-to-face human connection like I, I normally would. No one would even lightly notice without prior knowledge of the feature, said the apple insider guy. Right? Except what, uh, what if I'm in a culture where staring someone in the eyes all the time is actually kind of impolite or, or rude. Um, or what if I decide, well, do you know what, I think I've got a job interview. Could you, maybe I just turn on the spot removal feature because I've got a real kind of blinder on my nose, and I think I kind of want to remove that. And I'm a bit hungover, so just kind of take the bloodshotness out of my eyes. Right? There's a slippery slope there into this, right? So this is um, it's called emotional intervention. This is where uh, the guy on uh, the left is having his face made look more smiley. So if you're someone like me who has a grumpy resting face, so I'm told. Um, then I can then uh, make myself look m- more happy. Great, except if I'm having an online therapy session and my therapist really looking to see signs of kind of depression or something. Or except if I think, well, I know in this job interview that I'm Skyping for that they're hiring for diversity, so just make me look a little bit more dark skinned or maybe a little bit more biracial, or maybe a little bit more Asian. You, you know, start to get over into that. Everyone, I heard everyone just go, ooh. You get over to that discomfort zone. So if what starts off as a well-intended feature starts creeping forward into something that is, starts to get very spooky. And you ha- we really have to kind of interrogate those as we go. So maybe we need kind of uh, some kind of warnings on things. Like when you record a video of uh, a, a Skype with someone, and it says, you know, this is being recorded, maybe it needs to say, you know, warning, emotional filter's active. There's no fear to see. I'm just making a really stupid face, but who would know? Looping back to you know, the, the days of Photoshop, the um, graphics editor of the Los Angeles Times, he said in 1987, you know, we've got to rely, rely on people's ethics. You don't just cheat because the technology is available. Machines aren't ethical or unethical. People are. And as Aral, I think, sort of showed this morning, And as Chris was talking about, as we start teaching machines to be our assistants, just like good children, they kind of pick up on our ethics and they repeat them. And it remains to be seen whether this is still true. Thanks very much.